because what does dark mean? Does dark mean, well, dusk? Does it mean when the moon comes out? Does it mean when you see the stars? Does it mean pitch black? Does it mean something in between? Uh, and so we would always kind of push the limit of what darkness meant, right, to suit our own uh, desires. And we would like stretch the meaning of darkness to its full limit uh, and even beyond because we were trying to, of course, tailor the law and use it for our own purposes. And we'd test our parents to see how much we could get away with and still uh, be considered by the hair of our chinny-chin-chins to be in compliance uh, with the letter of the law. And the entire time, we weren't caring a bit about the meaning or purpose of the law, uh, which was, of course, that our parents loved us and cared about us and that they wanted to know that we were safe. Uh, all we cared about was being sure that uh, by some measure or definition of the law that, that uh, we invented, that somehow we would be uh, in compliance with it. And so we tailor the law, we bend it uh, to make it suit our needs. And so as we come... Uh, to this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing the same thing with the law that I was doing with the law as a kid. Uh, they had the law, and the law is up here, and they're like pushing up against the limits of it and maybe even surpassing it to see uh, if they can still uh, be in compliance with the law according to their own standards. They had the law, but they would massage it, and they'd manipulate it, and, and they would maneuver it, uh, and, and they would manage it to, to, to be able to say that they were in compliance with it, even though they were uh, using it and, and changing it for their own purposes. And, and then they would teach others to do the same. And so they mixed the law with their traditions, and then they emphasized their traditions over the parts of the law that they didn't like, and they raised up the parts of their tradition that they did like, and as long as they were in compliance with that, uh, they would attach the significance to those things that they wanted to and then say uh, that they were, were good, they were in compliance with the law. And of course, Jesus knew what they were all about. You remember in Mark chapter 7, uh, when Jesus uh, said to them, uh, you have heard in the law that it says, honor your mother and father, but you folks have already said, well, we can't honor our mother and father with our gifts because we've already pledged this money to God. And Jesus called them out and said, by that, you are invalidating the law for the sake of your own traditions, and you do many things like that. So it wasn't just that. They did many things like that. You remember the seven woes uh, that Jesus pronounced on uh, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Well, the thing that preceded those seven woes was that he, was, that he said to them first, he said, uh, you have heard and seen what the scribes and Pharisees uh, say. Uh, do what they say, but don't do what they do, because the scribes and Pharisees are hypocrites, and they relax the law, uh, and they make it easier for themselves to uphold and to keep. So uh, do what they say, uh, but don't do what they do. And so that's kind of the context of where we are, as Jesus is going to start to explain to them now what they are supposed to do. Now, just for a little bit of reset here, so we remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, remember, we've, we've been through the Beatitudes now. Jesus is saying to them, uh, you need to uh, be uh, these things that he told them to be. He wants them uh, to be mourning their sin, and he wants them to be meek, and he wants them to be poor in spirit, and all those Beatitudes, you need to be those things. And then you need to go out and be salt and light to a world that needs this salt and light that you have. And then he comes to the main point in verses 17 to 20, which we've looked at over the past couple weeks, and that is uh, that uh, Christ did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. 
And in fact, Christ has fulfilled the law, which means that we are no longer obligated to follow the ceremonial aspects of the law. However, we are obligated to still obey the moral aspects of the law because they uh, reflect the nature and character of God, and we want to reflect the nature and character of God to a world uh, that needs to see it. And then lest they think that he was saying that you need to be more like the scribes and Pharisees, he says, no, I'm not saying you need to be more like the scribes and Pharisees. He was saying your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so uh, that certainly would have caught their attention. That would have blown their minds. They would not have known how to do that. And so that's what our passages for the next couple of weeks are going to be about. How does our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? And so Jesus was saying to them, you don't need a different degree of righteousness. You don't need to be more uh, righteous by doing more good works than the Pharisees or to be more good than the Pharisees. You need a completely a different kind of righteousness. You need the kind of righteousness that Jesus can give, that only Jesus can give. And you get this righteousness that by believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so that's how you attain to that righteousness that you need. And so that's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And from now forward, what we're going to see, for the most part, is application of these general principles that he's already expounded here. So what does it look like to have your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Uh, what is this law of love that we love God and love others? And, and how does that look in our daily lives? Do we need to just obey the letter of the law, or are we supposed to be doing something much deeper than that? And so the rest of chapter 5, we'll see six illustrations that show us what Jesus meant when he was telling them that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we will come to them in order. Today we'll be talking about murder, but he uses these other illustrations about adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love that we will see in the coming weeks. And Jesus was going to show them that they had believed this false teaching of the Pharisees about strict adherence to the letter of the law without understanding the heart of the law behind it. And so they, uh, the people, had kind of been unwittingly pushing the boundaries of what the law meant uh, because they were following what the scribes and the Pharisees had taught them. But now Jesus is going to show them what it truly means to obey the law so that their righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So before we dive into the text today, I have a few introductory thoughts that I would like to uh, make us aware of because these thoughts will really apply to each of the uh, six applications and illustrations that Jesus is going to, uh, to use uh, that we'll talk about uh, in the coming weeks. So we'll talk about murder particularly today, but in the, uh, uh, we're gonna talk about these introductory uh, thoughts prior to talking about murder. So. Here's the first thought, and that is, is that Jesus exposed the false authority of the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, you'll notice that each one of these applications begins with, you have heard it said, or some kind of variation on that. Uh, in, in the uh, one about murder today, he says, you have heard that the ancients were told. And he used that same formula later on when he talks about oaths. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told. So what exactly does that mean? Uh, is he talking about ancient ancient, like all the way back to the law of Moses? Or is he talking about recent ancient, like the, uh, what, what the Pharisees and scribes were teaching over the course of the last several generations? And I think that it's really difficult to tell, like from, just from the language itself, what he means. 
Uh, but if you look at the context of it, I think it's pretty clear that he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees because uh, for one reason, if he wanted to say, uh, you have heard it said uh, in the law of Moses, uh, he certainly could have said that, right? But he didn't say the law of Moses. He didn't even mention Moses. He just said, you have heard it said. Uh, but secondly, and I think more importantly, uh, if he was talking about the law of Moses, then he would have had to have been saying uh, that he's invalidating or correcting the law of Moses. And that's clearly not what he was intending to do because as we saw just last week, Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he certainly didn't come to abolish the law of Moses. He was coming to fulfill the law of Moses, and that's what he did. So really what he's talking about is he's coming to contradict and correct the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, certainly uh, nothing that Moses <clears throat> had to say. Uh, so the scribes and Pharisees were holding themselves up as judges over the law, uh, when they had no authority to hold themselves up as uh, judges of the law. Uh, they were false authorities, and, and uh, they were changing and manipulating the law for their own convenience, uh, and they didn't have the authority to do that, but that's what they were doing anyway. And so Jesus says, you guys, you are false authorities. And in contrast to their false authority, uh, Jesus was setting himself up as the true authority, and he claimed true authority here. Uh, in each of these six illustrations, uh, Jesus contradicted the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, well, that's a claim of authority, right? Because he's going against this teaching uh, that had been uh, handed down from the generations of Pharisees uh, according to their tradition. And so Jesus, as the giver of the law and the fulfiller of the law, he is the one who has the authority to interpret the law and then show them how the law applies to them. Uh, and so that's what he's doing. And so essentially he's saying, uh, you are hearing what these scribes and Pharisees are saying uh, secondhand. Uh, they're being taught by generations of people before them. But I'm telling you what the law says and what it means from the source because I am the source of the law and I have the authority to tell you what it means and how it applies to you. Now, the people, of course, recognize Jesus' authority. Uh, we see that throughout the Gospels. Uh, just a couple of examples. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, uh, when Jesus cast out a demon from a man, the people said, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he casts out demons and demons obey him. So we see uh, this authority that the people recognize. And we also see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when we get to it in uh, two months, I'd say, uh, we're going to see that uh, what, what they say is uh, the people were amazed at this teaching because he taught as one with authority and not as one of their scribes. So they recognized that Jesus had authority. I think they were struggling to see the extent of his authority. And Jesus, of course, showed them the extent of his authority over everything in creation uh, during his life. This is how Jesus showed his authority. He showed it by uh, having his authority over nature, by calming storms, over demons, by casting them out, over sickness, by healing many, uh, over death, by raising Lazarus, and even over his own life by saying, I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it up again. Now, only God has this kind of authority, and Jesus was making a claim to deity by these comments. 
And he's saying, we, I am the true authority. These scribes and Pharisees are only cheap imitations and they're exercising false authority. So the scribes and Pharisees are the false authorities. Jesus is the true authority. And now one final observation that I'd like to make here, and that is that obedience to the law of love is from the heart. Jesus' point in each of these illustrations is that the law is not filled by an external set of rules and regulations that you can follow, like if you're going to read instructions to build a model airplane. It's not like that. We don't just follow the letter of the law like that. Uh, the, the law of love is fulfilled in the heart, and we can only fulfill the law of love if our hearts have been changed, and only God has the ability and capacity to change our hearts. Uh, the law requires a whole lot more, the law of love, than just following uh, the letter of the law. It requires a change of heart. It requires an inner change that God effectuates in us. Now, Jesus could have supplied an infinite number of examples, right? He chose these six uh, applications, but he could have chose many more. He could have said something like, uh, with respect to tithing, he could have said something like, uh, you have heard it said that you should tithe 10% of your dill, mint, and cumin. But I say to you, uh, give faithfully uh, from uh, whatever you have so that the kingdom of God may advance. And he could have said that, certainly, but he didn't do that because he wasn't trying to, to think of every conceivable application uh, that, that he could have to, to show them how their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's trying to give them some examples to show them what it looks like. And then he wants them to get to know God better. He wants to, them to commune with God. He wants them to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit do, their, do his work in them and allow them to have their hearts changed by God. And uh, God can change any heart, as we know. And and uh, as uh, God continues to work in our hearts, we are able to do what is seemingly impossible. And we'll see uh, that, God, that Jesus is teaching them that they can do the seemingly impossible over the course of the next couple of weeks. You know, one of the best things about not being under law, but being under grace is the freedom that we have. Because living out the law of love, let's face it, it is much harder than living out the law of Moses. What's easier to do? Thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not even harbor an angry thought against your brother. Uh, clearly, the law of love is much harder to keep uh, than the law of Moses. But if keeping the law of Moses is hard, well, that's just the beginning, because keeping the letter of the law perfectly, with perfect motivation, without ever having an impure thought, well, that's impossible. But God is showing us that he doesn't want us to be slaves to any law except the law to love God and love others. And if we do that with a proper heart attitude, if we truly love others with proper motivation, then we will be pleasing to God and we will be blessed. And so uh, these six illustrations is going to be Jesus showing them how uh, to do that. Okay, so those are some general principles that are going to apply across the entire uh, next part of this Sermon on the Mount, these six applications. Uh, today we'll move on to the particular applications, and the first one uh, is murder. Uh, so we'll all agree that uh, murder is something that we ought not to be doing, uh, but uh, Jesus meant something more than that. So let's read the verses, and uh, we'll talk about uh, verses 21 and 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, 
and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So, the source of the command. You, you certainly recognize, thou shalt not murder. That's from the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus chapter 20, which actually says, thou shalt not kill. Uh, but murder is the correct sense of the word, because we know that in certain circumstances, God did uh, give people the authority to kill uh, in the Old Testament. For example, we know that God told uh, Saul to wipe out all of the Amalekites. Uh, and we know that self-defense was permitted. If you killed in self-defense, uh, that was excusable under the Old Testament law. And we know that uh, capital punishment was acceptable under the Old Testament command. And so uh, it's not all killing, it's murder. And murder is a planned killing, a killing without justification, a killing without any excuse. Uh, so obviously, uh, when Jesus said, thou shalt not kill, uh, thou shalt not murder, he's talking about this premeditated kind of murder, and uh, certainly that does not contradict the law at all. Uh, then Jesus quoted a second statement from the law. In the second half of verse 21, he says, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, this, of course, also is true. And so apparently the Pharisees were teaching both of these things. Uh, don't commit murder, and if you do commit murder, you'll be liable to the court. Well, yes, that is true. You will be liable to the court, but that's not the reason why they're not supposed to commit murder, right? And so Jesus is going to try to get to the heart of what the command is about. So the scribes and Pharisees, uh, they faithfully upheld that law, right? The law not to, ki not to kill. Great, we haven't killed anybody, and so we are not guilty of, the, of breaking the law. No one could charge them with a crime under this law. Uh, they hadn't done anything wrong. But by their definition, everything up to the very point of murder, that would be okay. Uh, and so you see that they are pushing the bounds of the law and, and taking it to its literal extreme, but missing the heart of uh, what the law means. And so Jesus turned the entire uh, thought process upside down uh, by saying this first, uh, I say to you statement, but I say to you. And what he's going to say to them is that murder is just the last act in a continuum of emotional thoughts and then acts that lead right up to murder. So you begin with anger and then you go on to name calling and then that spirals downward into some kind of uh, premeditated thought that ends up resulting in murder. And so Jesus isn't just condemning the murder itself, but he's condemning every thought and act that leads up to the murder. All of those things are sinful. Now, we look at this and we say, well, how is it possible not to be angry uh, ever with somebody? Well, uh, it isn't, of course. It, uh, it's not possible not ever to be angry with somebody. But there are two words uh, in the Greek that are used to convey anger. And so uh, I want to talk about those words for a second because Jesus meant one and not the other. Uh, there is this one word called thumos. That's the Greek word for like a quick rising and quick dissipating anger. So if you should find yourself driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you get all angry for a second and tense and you maybe even utter a name at the person, uh, but that's a quick rising and quick dissipating kind of anger and it's over in a second. 
Uh, that's not the kind of anger Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about this other kind of anger, orge. That's the word that he used. It's this long-standing kind of anger, this malicious anger, this, this anger that kind of gets in your head and you're, you're spinning in your head, conspiring to figure out how you're going to get revenge for the, for the wrong that has been done to you, and it's unforgiving. That's the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. And so he wants us to watch out for that kind of anger because that kind of anger can turn to hate and name-calling and conspiracy and can even result in murder. And so he wants us to be careful not to be angry with our brother. And of course, brother does not mean simply or only biological brother. It means uh, our brothers in the congregation, our brothers in Christ. Uh, so we have to be careful not to let that kind of anger well up in us. Now, I put this uh, little phrase without cause there in parentheses. You may have that in your translation, you may not. Uh, there is a dispute about whether without cause is original uh, to the Greek or not. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it appears in the majority of the Greek manuscripts that exist, but on the other hand, it doesn't appear in the earliest and best Greek manuscripts. So most likely it's not original, but yet without cause is still very much the sense of what Jesus means there, because uh, there is such a thing as righteous anger, uh, and Jesus, of course, exercised it many times when he chased the, the uh, money changers out of the temple. That was a righteous anger because they were desecrating the temple and causing that temple to be uh, a den of sin. Uh, he called the scribes and Pharisees fools and hypocrites because they were leading people astray uh, and distorting the law. So Jesus, he has the authority to be angry because he is God and his wrath is holy and his wrath is righteous. But it's not necessarily okay for us to be angry because it's very hard for our anger to be holy and righteous uh, all the time. Uh, there's usually something uh, about our anger, if we're truly honest with ourselves, that is either self-avenging or uh, self-seeking or self-righteous or something like that. And in our fallen human condition, it's really hard for us to tell the difference. You know, we might think that we have righteous anger, but if we really think about it, if we're really honest with ourselves, probably we're angry because something has been done to us. And so uh, we get angry, and then we even call people names. And this name, Raka, that we see there, uh, some translations say Raka, some say you good for nothing. I wanted you to see the word Raka. It's a, uh, it's a, a translation from an old Arabic word. Uh, and it means something like, as the NASB has it, you good for nothing. Other translations might say you blockhead, you nitwit, something like that. Uh, that's the kind of word that it is. It's an insult to somebody's intelligence. Uh, but one commentator by the name of Barclay gives the real sense of what the word is. He says, Raka is an almost untranslatable word because it describes a tone of voice more than anything else. Its whole accent is the accent of contempt. Uh, it's the word of one who despises another with arrogant contempt. So uh, it's not just the word that is used, right? It's, it's, it's a whole attitude of condescension and de despising uh, your brother, and, and that's what Jesus wants them to avoid. And then, of course, there's the other kind of name-calling where he says, you fool. And if you call someone you fool, uh, well, that means a little bit more than intelligence. It also impugns the, the character of that person as well. So we see that impugning the character 
uh, and the intelligence of somebody is exactly what Jesus wanted them to avoid. Uh, because uh, these are the kinds of arrogant words that the scribes and Pharisees would use. You know how they were, walking around in their long robes with their long tassels and their phylacteries on their heads and loving the greetings of people in the marketplace and sitting at the finest places at tables. Uh, they loved that kind of honor, and you can see them talking down and condescending to others. And, and by their example, they're teaching others to do the same. And Jesus would have none of that. He would say to them, uh, this is not the letter of the law. We don't want you to be angry. If you're angry, then you are not reflecting the nature and character of God because a heart that's full of insults and full of condescension like that is a heart that is full of poison. It's a heart that is not right with God. So as we think about how Jesus interpreted this command, what this command really means, uh, Jesus was not saying uh, that anger is as bad as murder, but he was saying that both of them violate the law. And so murder is just the external manifestation of this uh, anger, this, this root that is burning up in the inside. It's a problem with the heart. And so the reason for murder or not murdering is certainly not fear that we're going to be uh, indicted by the authorities, though of course we will. Uh, the reason that we're not supposed to murder is because it goes against the nature and the very character of God that we are trying to reflect to the world. And it goes against God's great value that he places on human life. So, of course, we're not supposed to murder. But the reason that we're not supposed to be angry is just the same, because it goes against the nature and character of God to be angry uh, with our brother. And what we see is that uh, if we've been around long enough, we've certainly seen that you don't need to actually kill somebody to destroy them, right? We can kill people with malicious thoughts that turn into gossip, uh, slander, uh, even conspiracy to start rumors against somebody. Uh, that will destroy somebody just as much as murder will. And we can destroy ourselves with anger, right? When we have this brooding kind of anger that we won't release and we won't let go, that eats us up from the inside. And there's no room for God in that because that is consuming us. Uh, so God doesn't want us to be angry for those reasons. It destroys ourselves. It destroys our fellowship with God when we have that kind of anger uh, inside of us. Anger is inconsistent with someone who loves God and who is trying to love others and trying to reflect the nature and character of God. So if anger and insults uh, are so serious, we have to avoid them at all costs. And if we have a dispute with our brother, we have to reconcile as soon as possible. And so Jesus now is going to give them a couple of examples uh, about reconciliation, about how to rid yourself of this anger. And the first one that we're going to see is, is from the religious world. We have a, a man who has offended his brother, and he's on his way to give an offering at the temple. And then the second is actually from the secular world. We have two people who are on their way to court, uh, and the believer has wronged the unbeliever. And uh, so we have uh, this illustration from the secular world. But what we're going to see is that the principle in either case is the same. You have to make peace uh, with your brother. And that's required of somebody who is going to fulfill the law of love, to love God and love others. So now Jesus has kind of given this illustration, you should not murder, you should be angry. And now he's going to illustrate the illustration by showing us exactly how we do that. So from Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. 
Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then present your offering. So Jesus gives this illustration first from the point of view of a brother who was presenting his offering to uh, the Lord at uh, worship, uh, but he is the one who has wronged another. And of course, the people would have understood this illustration because they were used to the sacrificial system. They had grown up in it. And the sacrificial system required not only that you come and present your offering to God, but you have to be mournful. You have to be sorry for your sin. You have to reconcile. Uh, you have to make restitution. And you have to sacrifice. Uh, and so what this illustration shows us is that uh, reconciliation with our brother is even more important than bringing our worship offering to God. And I want us to notice here that there are no time uh, limits on this. There are no distance limits on this. It doesn't matter how long ago uh, this, uh, this uh, dispute happened with a brother. It doesn't matter how far away this brother is. We have to go and we have to make it right with that person. And so if we can't or we won't be reconciled to our brother, then God doesn't want our offering because he doesn't want us to bring an offering uh, on the one hand uh, and yet have a heart that is full of poison uh, on the other hand. So first, go and make peace with your brother and then come back and bring your offering. Now, we are in here in church this morning and we all have someone uh, who we need to be reconciled with. And I'm not going to encourage you not to put your offering in the basket when it comes around in a few minutes, but I am going to encourage you before you bring your offering next week that you reconcile with someone that you need to be reconciled with. There's not anybody in this room that doesn't have somebody that, that we need to be reconciled with. Uh, and so let's talk about the second illustration then. Uh, we are, we'll talk now about this illustration from legal action, verses 25 and 26. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So obviously the principle of reconciliation applies to our brothers. We are supposed to uh, apply, we were supposed to apply these principles of reconciliation and go make peace with our brothers. But what we see here is that it also applies to our opponents at law. Some translations say uh, our enemies. And so it's not just our brothers that we have to make peace with. It's our enemies as well. And so we see that this situation is something outside the church. Now, reconciling with a brother, a Christian brother, should be easy or easier theoretically. Uh, as brothers, we hold the same worldview. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so we know what it cost Jesus to reconcile with us that Jesus had to shed his own blood uh, so that we could have peace with God. And that's how badly God wants to have peace with us. And so as brothers, we understand the biblical principles of confession and forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. But that's not always so outside the church, right? When, when we are dealing with somebody outside the church, it's not the same as inside the church. Inside the church, if we're applying the biblical <laughs> principles of reconciliation and both parties are willing to comply with that, well, then reconciliation ought to happen. 
but that doesn't necessarily guarantee it's going to work with people outside the church. It's, it's twice as hard uh, with an unbeliever as it is with a believer. So this word enemy or opponent suggests that we're talking about somebody who is not a brother. And yet our duty remains the same. Uh, we are still to make peace with that brother. We must make every effort to reconcile with our enemy before we get to court, because look what can happen. He'll hand you over to the judge, and then you will be thrown into prison, and you'll stay in prison until you pay the last cent. Now, <clears throat> I think Jesus is doing a couple of things here. I think he's talking, of course, about the earthly principle that you'll be thrown into debtor's prison, and from debtor's prison, you can't make money to pay off the debt you owe. So we're talking about a civil matter here. But I think the civil judgment here also reflects divine judgment, and I think Jesus means both here. If we don't make peace with God before we stand before him as judge, well, we're not going to get out of prison until we pay the very last cent. And of course, that's not possible to do. So what he's saying is, uh, make peace with your enemy, make peace with God before it's too late, because judgment is coming and justice will be done. Now, to put it all together, Jesus was teaching the intent of the law. And the heart of God goes much deeper than the mere letter of the law. Of course, murder is against the law. Uh, but that's just the letter of the law. It's not the act that's wrong. It's every thought, like I said, that leads up to the act that is also wrong. Because our innermost thoughts are subject to God's scrutiny and examination and judgment. And so we have to have a heart attitude that will not even allow uh, anger to take any kind of root in our hearts for whatever trivial reason we may hold on to our anger. And if we do that, we are being murderers at heart. Now, we have Jesus as our example, because what I just said is an absolute impossible standard. It is impossible for us to never have any anger in our hearts toward another. But Jesus gives us the example of how we can do this. I want you to consider Jesus. Of course, he was angry. Yes, he was, that the people were making a mockery out of the temple court, and he chased the money changers out with a whip, and he was angry when he did it. And yes, he was angry with the scribes and the Pharisees because they were distorting the law, and they were teaching others to do the same. But Jesus' anger was a righteous indignation over sin and over injustice. It was never an anger over what was done to him personally. The greatest injustice, the greatest travesty of justice that was ever committed was the wrongful trial and execution, the murder of Jesus. And yet, as these people are uh, treating him unjustly, convicting him uh, without a proper due process, leading him to the cross, beating him, spitting on him, and then ultimately nailing him to the cross, what does Jesus do? Does he call them names? Does he call down 12 legions of angels to rescue him? Uh, does he uh, inflict any kind of divine wrath on them whatsoever? No, he does exactly the opposite. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, if Jesus could be subject to the most grossly unfair trial of all time and go to the cross to die for our sins without a word, so that we might have peace with God. What does that tell us about how we ought to be towards our brother? 
He went to the cross, dying for our sin in our place, dying for those very people who were nailing to the, the, him to the cross in their place without uttering a word. And he showed us the extent of the lengths that he's willing to go to reconcile because, as Romans says, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. Now, are we going to harbor anger in our hearts as we think about Jesus on the cross dying for our sins? Will we not forgive someone else who has wronged us uh, for whatever trivial thing it may have been when we realize what Jesus did dying on the cross for our sins? You see, it's not enough not to murder. While still harboring anger uh, and resentment in our hearts, that does not fulfill the law of God to, to love God and to love others. Uh, whether we realize it or not, when we're harboring this anger, we are pushing against the very boundaries of the law and in fact, even breaking the law. And God is calling us murderers as we do that. We're as guilty as murderers just by harboring this kind of anger. And so the solution is simple on the one hand, but as hard as can be on the other hand. Uh, Romans 12 says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with others. And so that is our charge. We are to go and make peace with others because the Lord looks at the heart, not just the deeds. So I will ask you, who are you angry with? Who has wronged you? Uh, who are you harboring anger and resentment in your heart against? Is it really that big of a deal? Is it bigger than going to the cross for our sins? Of course it's not. We need to let that anger go. We need to forgive. We need to release the anger. Uh, who is angry with you? Are they angry with you for cause? Well, go and make it right. Even if it's an unbeliever, we have to go and we have to make it right. Uh, we don't fulfill the law of love just because we haven't plunged a knife into our neighbor's heart, right? Uh, nobody is going to be brought to Christ because we refrained from killing somebody. We, are, we bring other people to Christ because they see that we have gone and we have made peace with somebody in a real difficult situation. And when somebody sees that you have been wronged uh, and you went to that person and you said, uh, I forgive you for what you did, or even harder, when you know that you are wrong and other people see you going to someone else and saying, I am so sorry that I did that, will you forgive me? Well, that's how people see the love of Christ in us. And they'll ask you, how did you draw that kind of power to do that? I could never do that. And that's your opportunity to say, well, I'll tell you how. By the power of Jesus Christ, I was able to do that. And that's why we are supposed to follow the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law, because we're trying to reflect the nature and character of God. We want to bring people to Christ, not just slavishly follow the letter of the law. God has given us a new heart, not a heart of stone, a heart of flesh, and he has given us his Holy Spirit. And it's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit to reorder our lives in this way. We only have to be willing to submit to Jesus, submit to his Holy Spirit, and allow him to have his way with us. So don't be angry. Be reconciled and show the love of Christ to others today. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for this message. It's a difficult message. Lord, who can go uh, even a day without being angry with somebody? And yet, 
uh, our anger goes against your nature and character, Lord, and we have to rely on you to look like you, to reflect you to a world that desperately needs to see you through us, Lord. So help us to keep these principles and thoughts in our minds as we go through our day, Lord, when we're tempted to be angry, even if we have cause to be angry, Lord, please help us to put that aside and reflect the love of Jesus to others so that they might see Jesus in us, uh, ask how we have the power to do this, and ultimately to be saved, Lord. We thank you for grace. We thank you that we are free from the law and that you have given us grace uh, so that we might be saved, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.